Good morning, Highland Park. It is good to be with you this morning. We've been trying to lay a thick, thick biblical foundation for this idea of oneness and unity. And we, we began uh, in week one, a couple weeks ago, by looking at Jesus' prayer from John 17 and just looked at all of Jesus' life. And then last week, we looked at Paul's teaching, and we specifically opened up the book of Ephesians and just kind of went through the whole book. And again, we just really wanted to look at, wow, the entire book of Ephesians keeps coming back to this theme of reconcile people to God, reconcile people to be each other, that the, the church can be one. And and our beef, if you want to put it that way, is not that the church can be one with every single individual out there. We probably can't. But the church can be one together, and we can do everything we can to remove barriers between people coming to the Lord. Because oftentimes that first looks like people getting to know you, getting to know me. And so if you missed either of those first two sermons, because they're so foundational, I would encourage you to just go. You can always go hptulsa.com, hit the media tab, and you can listen uh, to the sermons there. You can watch them. Uh, actually, watching last week's might be a little more helpful because there's some visual things. If you're a podcast person like I can, you can go to iTunes and just uh, click podcast and listen to things there. Uh, but it's just important to lay this biblical foundation. And today, after we've looked at Jesus' prayer and Paul's teaching, now we just look at what did the first church do? Like, how did they try to live out the principles of oneness and unity and reconciliation? And so if you have your Bibles, there's one place to look if we want to see what did the first church do, and that's the book of Acts. So be turning there, because Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we've got the four Gospels, and then we have Acts. Martin Luther King Jr. lamented on a number of occasions that Sunday mornings were the most segregated hour of the week, and he hated that. And there's a reason for that, certainly in our country, because we have a couple of centuries in which uh, minorities were not allowed in most churches. And so what is someone to do? Well, you begin sometimes, uh, even slaves were allowed to begin their own churches, but they had to be separate, segregated. And so we have a couple hundred years of that, and then we... Uh, have segregation outlawed, and um, while churches still have some freedom to do some things, uh, you don't just see any churches anymore that are saying, these people are out, only these people are welcome. However, most churches still have remained fairly segregated, even with laws changing. And so we realize it's sometimes a matter of the heart, and what began as uh, being forced out now we just have an issue of, are we welcoming people in? Are we intentional about uh, becoming a diverse church and, and breaking the barriers down that allow people to worship together? Because certainly, when God started the church, it was a mosaic. We have to begin with Acts chapter 2, when the church really began. But before Acts 2, there was no such thing as the church. We had some followers of Jesus. Jesus uh, ascended to heaven, but he says, I will be with you. And he says, I'm, I'm sending the Holy Spirit to be with you. And so at the day of Pentecost, there's these thousands and thousands and thousands uh, of people gathered together, hundreds of thousands, all in Jerusalem, uh, from all over the place. If you would have walked through, it would have sounded like you were in an airport, an international airport, where you're hearing all these different languages. And the disciples begin to preach and 
Acts 2 said they uh, had this gift of, uh, of tongues at this time where w- when they spoke, everybody heard them in their own language. And so somewhere between their lips and people's ears, everyone's hearing it, even in their own dialect, in their own language. Everybody's like, wow, these, and these are uneducated guys. They were kind of known as the hillbillies <laughs> from Galilee. They, they haven't been educated. How are they able to do this? But everybody here is hearing the gospel in their own language, and thousands of people right then that day, um, after this beautiful, simple message about Jesus, are baptized, and the church begins. Thousands more would soon follow. When the church began, I mean, it was multilingual to the nth degree. I mean, immediately the church could speak all kinds of different languages. If you go back to Acts chapter 1, right before Jesus departed, um, he said to everybody, I'm going to give you the power you need. The Holy Spirit is coming, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where they were. In Judea, the land around Jerusalem, in Samaria, we've talked about Samaria. They were considered half-breeds, the outcast. That's going way out of your comfort zone. And then Jesus doesn't end there. You'll be my witnesses even to the very ends of the earth, to places you never even heard of yet. You're going to go there and be my witnesses. So Jesus gave this directive, you're going to go into all the world. You're not just going to stay put in your little place. You're going to go, and you're going to be my witness and tell people. But as we begin turning the pages in the book of Acts, we get all the way to chapter 8, and guess where all of the believers still are? They're still in Jerusalem. They, They haven't left their little place yet. And so you know what happens? Persecution begins happening. Christians are being persecuted. So what do you do when you're persecuted? You run. You try to find safety. And so suddenly the gospel breaks outside of Jerusalem and Judea. Was it because of their great strategy? No. Because they had to. Little devotional thought here. God cares more about the spreading of his word, about evangelism, about eternity, than he cares about your personal safety and comfort. If he's willing to use persecution to reach the lost, he's willing to use anything. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care about you. He does. He cares about you. He loves you. He hurts when you hurt. I'm just saying as a matter of priority, God cares more about the lost people on this planet than he does about my comfort and my safety, that he will do whatever he does because he's thinking in eternal where we're often just thinking about the moment. And so... Uh, the church is scattered, and Philip is one of those, and he goes to Samaria. And so he is, becomes obedient to Christ and begins preaching in this place where uh, not many Jews would be willing to go. And he's preaching the message of Jesus, and amazing things are happening. Revival is breaking out. The cities where he's going are rejoicing. Uh, and then he uh, is prompted uh, by God to go out near this road, and a chariot is coming by. And he looks, and there's an Ethiopian official in there, and uh, Philip runs up next to it, and the Ethiopian official is reading the book of Isaiah. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. This prophecy, and he doesn't understand it. And he says, "Can, can you help me understand this? Come on up here. And so Philip climbs up into the chariot, They sit down and it says that Philip began with that verse, with that scripture, and taught him about Jesus. 
And by the end of his teaching, they pass some water, the chariot's still moving, and the Ethiopian official says, hey, why should I not be baptized right now? No reason not. They jump out. Philip baptizes him right then. I have some personal affection for this story because my oldest daughter was born in Ethiopia. Her biological family, as we understand, were Christians. And I've wondered, how, how did they know the Lord? I, and I don't know, but I've just wondered, if you traced their story of the gospel back generation after generation, could you trace it all the way back to Philip and the Ethiopian official? Maybe. All we know, when Philip was obedient and crossed uh, you know, these ethnic, uh, cultural boundaries to share the gospel, who knows how many people came to the Lord through that Ethiopian who was traveling all the way back to his home and now was equipped with the scripture and the knowledge and the good news of Jesus. But as we look in the book of Acts, that did not settle the controversy. It continued. Uh, still, Jewish Christians were still basically saying this. If you want to be a Christian, you have to become a Jew first. That's, that's basically what they were saying. And, and God keeps saying, no, that's not, that, that's not it anymore. People can just be Christians without becoming a Jew first, without adapting your culture first, doing what you are saying and adding these layers to it. In other words, God was saying, you need to be impartial. Partiality or favoritism, as Greek scholar Kenny Bowles puts it, is face-taking. That's what it literally means. So you take someone's face into account. So if a judge did this, and I was the one on the witness stand, throughout my entire life, people have told me, Brian, sometimes you have a smirk on your face. And when they say that, I get a bigger smirk on my face. I can't help it. I don't know what I'm thinking when that happens. I'm just not thinking at all, probably. And even yesterday, my daughter said, Dad, you have a smirk on your face. I'm like, this has been happening to me since I was in high school. And if a judge looked at me, he'd be like, oh, he's guilty. I'm like, what did I do? I I don't know, but you're guilty of something. I don't know what you did. Uh, So if a judge took someone's face into account, they would be, be showing partiality, be showing favoritism. And God says, don't do that. And God says, I don't do that. I don't do that with you. And my people should not do that with anybody else. Nobody should be showing favoritism. But the matter still was not settled. In fact, God teaches Peter this lesson, and he has to keep teaching it to him. I I can almost picture God with a big whiteboard, and he's trying to figure out how to get Peter to understand this lesson. He said, well, I'll, I'll send a vision to him. Whereas she is lowered in different types of food uh, that are not kosher for Jewish people to eat. And I'm going to send it down and tell him to eat it. And he, he did this three times. And right when the vision ends, there's a knock on the door. And it's people that Cornelius has sent. And God has also been speaking to Cornelius, this Gentile um, Roman and uh, who loves the Lord but wants to know more about the way of the Lord. And they get Peter and they take him to the house of Cornelius and Peter walks in and there's a whole crowd there waiting. And Peter's like, oh, I now see that we should not show partiality, favoritism, that God wants all people to come to him and they don't have to follow all of the Jewish customs in order to come to Jesus but the story is still not over. As we read through the book of Acts, Peter is then called in and has to give account, like, why did you do this? 
And so he explains. And again, he's asked, why did you do this? It ends up being this convention is called, this council. We call it the, the Jerusalem Council. And they said, okay, let's bring in all the bigwigs. Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James, everybody together, because we need to have clarity about this issue. We need to know, is God really okay with people coming to Jesus uh, without first uh, adopting all of the Jewish customs that we have? And so they come, and James gives this eloquent speech, and he begins using, we call our Old Testament scripture, their scripture, and he lays it out for them, and he goes on to say this in chapter 15, verse 19. This is a huge statement. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. You see, what people were doing is they were making it very difficult for the Gentile people to come to Christ because they were layering up with these other things. Now, I know, and I'm... I'll always love it that lots of our teenagers sit right up here. And I got to do youth ministry for a number of years, and I actually drove by the church building where I spent my first four years during college, first five years during college uh, doing youth ministry. And one thing about youth ministry is when teenagers become, begin coming to Jesus, they come as teenagers. You know, they don't dress like the adults always. They don't always talk like the adults. And, and there was a number of conversations that I had with people throughout the years, and this was always a difficult subject of somebody coming and saying, hey, I, I think that you need to tell the teenagers that they need to not wear this or this or this or this. And, and if it wasn't a matter of like modesty and just clearly being something out of line, I would kind of just come back and the church would come back to the statement of like, we don't want to make it difficult for teenagers to come to God. So let's let them come to God. <laughs> You know, we don't need to change their whole culture. We don't need them to act like 35-year-olds or 45-year-olds. Let them be teenagers. And the same is true when we send missionaries out. We want missionaries to go to places, and we don't want them to go to an African village and make that African village American and then Christian. We just want them to make them Christian. They don't, they don't need to have a piano and a guitar. If they just play the tambourine, let them just keep playing the tambourine and be Christians who play the tambourine. And, and, and so it's so easy to try to get people to adapt to our culture, to the way that we like things, what we're used to, and we just need to help people come to Jesus. If there's sin in their life, absolutely, we want to address that and allow God to work in them. But if it's just a, a custom or tradition or what you wear or something like that, we, we don't want to make it difficult for people to turn to God. God rejects partiality and favoritism. And this isn't a new thing. I mean, 3,000 years ago, the prophet Samuel comes up to find the new king, and Jesse brings out his oldest boy who's all macho and good-looking and is built to be a king, and Samuel's like, yeah, that's got to be the guy. He looks like everything I ever imagined a king to look like, and God's like, uh-uh, not him. Next one, no, nah, not him. And then there's one kid out in the field that Jesse did not even bring out because he's just a shepherd boy. And God says to Samuel, people look at the outside, but the Lord looks at the heart. We still do that. We're still face-taking. We're still showing favoritism. We're still making snap judgments of people. It's plagued the human race. And so we need Jesus to come and to change us. Because when we judge people, that, that looks an awful lot like rejecting people. And that's how it turns into today's sermon title is the church in segregation and the truth is the american church has had a rough history with this and uh, i'm glad that 
couple weeks ago, and again today, been able to share a little bit about the restoration movement. Our church is birthed from the restoration movement of this idea of we want to follow the Bible and follow the Lord, but not be tied to a denomination necessarily. And it doesn't mean that we think we're better than everybody else or anything like that, but we want to just recognize all believers as one and help pull people together and follow the Bible. But uh, our own movement has had some moments in our history um, that we're not proud of. Uh, at one point, the Disciples of Christ and Church of Christ and Christian churches, you see them kind of by those names, were all together in one. And the Civil War was one of the things that split some of our churches. And uh, specifically, the Church of Christ churches were basically divided between the northern states and the southern states. And the southern states were like, hey, don't say anything about slavery. Just let it be. We don't need to, we don't need to cause any trouble here. And if, if they did not defend it, they at least said, let it be, don't cause any trouble. And that went on, and we may think, well, that was a long time ago. It really wasn't when you think about the impact and the effect. Because uh, just in 1963, one of a, a prominent uh, Church of Christ college in Arkansas was still segregated until the uh, Civil Rights Bill was passed. Still segregated, still did not allow minorities in. There's a picture of the president of that college standing in front of a chapel service and saying, well, we're, we're now going to allow three African Americans in. And the student body erupts in applause, and he's trying to kind of do like, oh, no, it's not a good thing. One of the other colleges that is a fantastic college now, uh, Abilene Christian University down in Texas, and does great work now, but for years was segregated. And there was a lecture that they hosted, and three years before MLK's march to Washington, there was a man by the name uh, of Spain, and he uh, came together, uh, got people together, and said, uh, I'm going to make this speech. And people heard about it. He was asked and allowed to speak, and they heard that his subject might bring up the idea of segregation. And so it was a packed house and a big deal. And let me just read a few historical uh, quotes from that. It says, I feel, uh, and by the way, the, the Associated Press was there. Like, it was a big, big deal. People were covering and reporting on it daily, what was going to happen. Would the school now allow uh, minorities in? And in a time when they did not, he got up knowing that many people would be very opposed to his statement, and he said this, I feel certain Jesus would say, you hypocrites, you say you are the only true Christians and make up the only true church and have the only Christian schools, yet you drive out one of your own preachers from your school because of the color of his skin. We fear the mythical character named Jim Crow more than we revere Jesus Christ. That changed the day for that school. That was it. That was the punch. <laughs> and, and they changed, and I am so thankful for it. It took an act of valor. And by the way, for Spain, it ruined his preaching career. It was the end of his preaching career. Uh, most churches would not allow him in anymore. Uh, he was threatened. He even had threats made against his life fairly regularly. His own brothers in Christ made his life a nightmare. It took an act of valor. This wasn't very long ago. The cause of Christ has always required trailblazers. One church 
was full of them. And so if you have your Bibles open to Acts, turn over to Acts chapter 11. And I'm going to read from chapter 11 and then chapter 13 about the church of Antioch. And I want you to listen to these trailblazers. I want you to listen to all of the first things that happened. Chapter 11, I'm going to begin in verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus uh, to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul, that's Paul, met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now in the church at Antioch, there were some prophets and teachers. Listen to these names. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, um, Manian who had been brought up with the Herod, uh, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Antioch was an urban diverse, influential city. At the time of Acts, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. So we're talking about a a humongous, influential city. And Luke names the leaders. And if we believe that everything in Scripture is from God and there for a reason, I think there's a reason why Luke includes their ethnicity. And Mark Demise writes, Surely it is more than coincidental that two of these men were from Africa, one was from the Mediterranean, one was from the Middle East, and one was from Asia Minor. That the church decided, here's the best thing that we can do, that we have this diverse leadership to reach this diverse city, and that we can do everything that we can to listen to people and know the needs of people and to love people and let the gospel go to people. And as the Christians we saw... In chapter 11, fled persecution. At first, they preached only to the Jews. That's the phrase. However, there were some trailblazers. And they went and they preached. And the world would never be the same because they took it outside of just the Jewish community. And so we see three firsts about the church uh, from Antioch. First, they were first called Christians. And I think that means something. They were first called Christians We like to be homogenous, and if you've heard that phrase, it just means that if you're in a homogenous group, you're with people who look like you, vote like you, act like you, think like you, just kind of people who kind of come from the same perspective as you, um, from where you might be from. 
And Tony Evans, uh, who's a preacher, has this great little bit uh, that, um, that I appreciate, and he talks about mayonnaise. Who here hates mayonnaise? Forgive me for this illustration, but just hang with me. Mayonnaise is mostly oil and water, but it, oil and water never get along, do they? They don't like each other. And so you have to have something to bring them together, an emulsifier. And so in mayonnaise, it's an egg. Put an egg in there, and it brings the oil and water together. But without that, they never come together. And so Tony Evans says this. People from different backgrounds may not have natural affinity, but when the word of God is treated right and the Holy Spirit is allowed to engage, it can bring together things, people, backgrounds, histories, races, colors, and cultures, and hold them together in a way that natural affinity may not be able to do. And that's what the work of the Holy Spirit does in us, to allow us to be one with each other. We might be like oil and water from our backgrounds, politically or uh, ethnically or socioeconomically, whatever it might be. We might see the word very different if uh, you were born in 1950 versus 2005. You may see the world very differently, but Christ can bring us together. Without Christ, we are divided. So it was first in Antioch that the, that the church was called Christians. The second thing we see as a first is... Uh, they organized an effort to help the poor. Isn't that cool? I mean, you think about a history of benevolence, and uh, our church wants to help people and care for people and love people, and they heard there's this famine happening in Jerusalem, the place where we once were afraid to leave, and now they're going around to these other churches outside of Jerusalem saying, hey, let's collect this money and let's send it back. And let's help our brothers and sisters there in their time of hunger, in their time of need. And so the idea of church benevolence began with Antioch. The third thing is that we see a missionary team sent out. It's the first missionary effort, the organized missions uh, effort, where the church gets together and they say, we need to send people out. One of my favorite illustrations comes from Chris DeWelt, who teaches missions and intercultural studies at Ozark Christian College, and he says, you need to think about the world as a waffle, not a pancake. If you think about the world as a pancake, did you hear this recently? Yes, if you go to Ozark, you'll hear it. Uh, If you think about the world as a pancake, all you got to do is pour the syrup on the middle and it runs everywhere. But the world's not like that. If you think about it as a waffle, you got to pour the syrup in each little compartment to make it really yummy. You want the syrup in every little place, right? And you can't just pour it on one spot. And that's how we need to think about missions, that we need to cross cultural barriers, generational barriers, economic barriers, geographic barriers to get the gospel in every place where we can. And God blesses this effort of the unnamed Christians. They aren't given a name here. We don't know who they were who first went, but it says, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. We should never be surprised when miraculous events accompany obedience. I want to see God do earth-shattering things. Don't you want to see that? Don't you want to see God break down barriers and bring people to him and restore lives? Don't you want to see that? Don't you want to be part of efforts where the the gospel is sent out and the world is changed? I want to see that. I want to be part of that. So we must intentionally go and climb over and keep moving and figure out how to get to the next place the gospel is calling us to go. It makes sense 
that a multi-ethnic church would give birth to missions. You think about this big city, all these people, just like our big cities today, people, why do they go to the big city? For work. Or maybe they want to go there because there's other people there, but there's, there's, it's like a magnet. Lots of people go there, and these people come there from different places, and then they hear the gospel, and they become Christians, and then what's the next thing they think? Man, nobody has ever told my hometown of the gospel. And those places where I used to work or used to live, I'm sure there's no Christians there. And they begin to think, wow, the world is a lot bigger than just this city. So we've got to get the gospel out of just being in this city and go somewhere. It's a beautiful thing. So the task ahead of us is to root out both intentional and unintentional barriers to root out intentional and unintentional reasons for segregation. If you're here, you'll notice in our worship times, we're not perfect at it. We're not hitting uh, A-plus every single time when you come here on a Sunday morning. But I'll tell you, we're trying. We're praying about and thinking about how can we be a place that loves people, and when people come, regardless of uh, their cultural background or regardless of their age, they feel loved, and they feel cared for. And that's difficult. It would be way easier to appeal to one group of homogenous people who all thought the same, liked the same things, listened to the same music, voted for the, if it was just all the same, it's way easier to grow a church that way. It really is. But it's difficult to do this work. And God has signed you up for it. He signed us up for it. And we need you to be on this journey with us. So in our programs and in our fellowship and in our serving, we're trying to do things that will promote unity, that will get people together. Uh, on the back of your sermon page, I'm not going to spend much time here at all, but I, I just want to mention that you can go back and look at that later. But David Ireland, who leads a large international church, lists five reasons the church needs diversity. And he's talking specifically about ethnic diversity, but I think these things apply uh, to generational socioeconomic as well. He says diversity is biblically mandated. We've laid the foundation there. He says a homogenous church is a compromised church. And I believe he's right. Here's why. Because if you're with a group of people who only think like you, you're missing stuff that's actually reality. You kind of get this bunker mentality. The wisest people are able to think how other people different from them may be thinking. For instance, if, uh, if a bunch of guys got together and planned an entire women's conference, would you send your mom or sister or daughter? No. It would be a disaster because we would think like guys, okay? And the skeet shoot might not go that well, okay? Um, I mean, I know a few of you would like it. No offense to the ladies who are going to the skeet shoot later today, but there's not one. I don't know. Um, but... You need to think beyond yourself, and so that's why he says it, and I really agree with him. Uh, diverse relationships enrich our lives, and that is so true. Number four, segregation reinforces prejudice. That's a hard statement. but It, it doesn't mean that um, you are a racist if you don't have this great group of diverse friends, but it means there's a breeding ground for that to take place. Because when we're a, only around people like us, we develop some fears for people who are not like us. And we hear the, the perspectives of people only like us. So at the very least can become a breeding ground there. And number five, diversity models unity. It just does, and we see that's a biblical theme. And so with that said, we have to come 
back to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, where we see that God has this plan where he wants his church to be together. Ephesians 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Read these last few verses with me. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I hope that you keep looking at that verse and keep going back to it. So on this question of is it a goal for the church to be diverse? It's a goal for the church to be obedient. I think we're called to be obedient and we leave the outcome to God. I can't, I can't say what this church is going to look like 10 years from now, but I can tell you we have a commitment to be obedient and to remove any barrier we see and to do anything that we can to help Highland Bark be a place, be a group of people who welcomes people not like them to hear the gospel and to, and to help those people love other people. And so we are called to be as obedient as we can. The book of Acts concludes with the imprisoned Paul making one final appeal. After all of his life work that we see, this is the last thing that we have recorded that he says in the book of Acts, and it's this. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. It's like that's his last thing. He's like, I've been trying and trying and trying, and God's been trying and trying and trying to tell you to go outside of yourselves. People will listen to the gospel. And I want to ask you, have you listened to the gospel? Because God sought you for you to be one with him, to be reconciled to him. And, and God cares for you. He sent his son Jesus to die on a cross so you could be one with him. Have you listened to the gospel? And have you shared the gospel so that people will listen? This morning, if you would like prayer to say, I'm ready to be baptized just like the Ethiopian official was. I see water right up there. I'm ready. We would love to visit with you and talk with you and pray with you. If you would like prayer, We'll have some folks up front here on the front rows on either side. You can just make your way up here during this next song or just once the service is over. Either way, we'll have people who would love to pray with you and visit with you. If you would, would you stand and let me pray. God, we thank you that you modeled of, what, of a way the church can just reach out outside of ourselves. We, we love each other. We care for each other. And God, I pray that that love would never put blinders on us to only see each other, but it would actually spur us on to keep going, to keep going, to keep climbing, to keep taking the gospel to new places. And that Highland Park can be a group of people, your church, that helps people be one with you, one with each other. Help us be one, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.